Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen in the show of service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're a speaker or if you're a meeting planner and you're trying to figure out a path forward in this time when most uh, conferences are closed down, it's a great virtual marketplace to get together with one another and lay it all out and figure it all out. SpeakerMatch.com sponsor of our podcast today as we welcome to the show my friend uh, grammy winning music producer and award-winning author jeff weber in this really weird time to be talking about music and and books and gosh everything jeff joins us from his home in southern california hey buddy how you holding up hey man i'm aging disgracefully but other than that we're doing great so you've got this incredible background and I want to roll it back to the beginning. And, uh, you know, you're, you're now a Grammy winning music producer, but you didn't start out that way. How did you get interested in, in being in the music business to begin with? And when was that? I, uh, had graduated college and, uh, went to law school and, uh, thought I was going to follow in my father's footsteps and become a lawyer. And uh, I did, I did go to law school, and I, I discovered that there were certain things I liked about it, but mostly I didn't. And I uh, was taking the bar exam, and I was well, as working as a gopher for a, a record label nearby the law school. And by gopher, I mean I did everything that they asked me to do. Uh, of course, I wasn't paid. It was kind of an intern gopher, you know, which yeah. I, I guess is the, the intern is the proper word for it now, the technical term, where you do everything, press buttons, take notes, do all the things. But what was great about it was uh, the, uh, the company was called Sheffield, and it was owned by two amazing individuals, Lincoln Mayorga and Doug Sachs. Doug Sachs, of course, is well known for mastering many Grammy winning records at his uh, company called the mastering lab. Lincoln Mayorga was a session musician, a piano player, and they created an audiophile record company called uh, Sheffield. And I had uh, heard a Sheffield record and it sounded so unique and different from all of the other records at that time, records were costing $3, but an audiophile record was costing and you could find them primarily in uh, stores that sold hi-fi gear and salesmen would use them to sell equipment saying if you just buy this equipment look how great your musical sound it wasn't the equipment it was the record anyway so I uh, graduated law school and uh, I was a journalist and I wrote a review of one of the Sheffield records and that's uh, how they got in touch with me and said, you know, I asked them if I could come down and be a fly on the wall. And they said, well, just come down. And so I, I, I started doing that. And uh, after graduation, I got a job at a record industry trade publication that was looking for a writer who could synthesize the lawsuits in the record industry down to three paragraphs for their readers. For example, why the Eagles were suing David Geffen, perhaps. Uh, so I would take, I would get the complaint and I would synthesize it down. And I was at Cashbox, 
which was at that time one of three music industry trade publications. Billboard is the only survivor today. Uh, and I noticed that the music that I was hearing was so terrible and the records were so bad. And I thought, well, maybe I should just try doing one of these things just to see if I could make a record and then go back theoretically spending the rest of my time trying to pass the bar. So I decided at that point, I was Jeff Weber, the record producer. So I went to a company in St. Louis called Discwasher that made record care cleaning products. I had written a story about them for the magazine. And I said, look, I, I'm a record producer and uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you've heard my work, wink, wink. And I uh, have three guys that I want to make a record with. And I think that you should treat the recording as a marketing tool so that you would make the record. You'd put it on the turntable and you'd actually have something to demonstrate all your record cleaning products. You could write the whole thing off as advertising. And I went to these three musicians and I said, hey, my name's Jeff Weber and I'm a record producer and <laughs> I want to make a record with you, but I'd like to do it in a very specific way. It's called direct disc recording, which means the entire side of the record is recorded one time directly onto what is what is known as a master lacquer. No tape, no stopping between songs, just enough so that there's space between them as there would be on a record. And uh, that is an extremely dangerous way to make a record. Sure. But that was the audiophile. Uh, that was one of the, the attractions of audiophiles is there was this, this no interim tape. There was no intermediary. It went right from the studio right to cutting, right a, as it cut the lathe, uh, the lacquer rather. So uh, <clears throat> the, the company in St. Louis, Disquasher, said, this sounds interesting. Write us a proposal. I had no idea what that meant. I wrote a term paper. That's what I was used to. And uh, <laughs> they said, let's try it. Wow. That's, that's when everything really started to, as they say, hit the fan. Because now I actually had to do it. And because I don't know anything about the record business, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I went to the three guys and I said, okay, so uh, I've got permission to do this with you. And, uh, I, you know, I wanted, I waited for them to tell, ask me, so have we heard anything that you might have done? But of course they're musicians. So what do you think they wanted to know? Well, how much do we get paid? Of course. Of course. Right. And of course I didn't know what they should get paid because I don't know anything. So I said, well, what would you like? And, uh, the leader uh, told me, and I didn't know to say that's ridiculous or not. So I just said, okay. And uh, <laughs> there was a trio, a jazz trio record, and we did the recording live uh, direct to disc at RCA Studios in Hollywood. And the reason why I was able to do it there is because on the second and the fifth floor were cutting lathes. So I could go right to the master lacquer. They had to lower cable outside the building down and into the recording studio. And I had to make phone calls to each of those facilities on the second and the fifth floor to make sure that the needle was cutting into the groove properly. Then I would have to point to the artist and they would have to do a silent count off and then start the side, not the song, the side. So uh, if anyone made a mistake during any of the songs, we actually had to throw the entire lacquer away and start from the first song all over again. But these three guys, they were fearless. 
I mean, nothing, <laughs> nothing at all was uh, you know, a problem for them. Uh, the three guys, coincidentally, were Paul Smith on piano, Ella Fitzgerald's piano player for 30 years. Oh my. The, most famous, the most famous bass player in all of jazz, Ray Brown, and Louis Belson on drums. Nothing could deter these guys. I mean, and so they asked me a question. So what are we, what are we playing? And I thought, hmm, okay, what are we playing? So I get to choose the songs. So I thought, since I don't know anything, you're an idiot. Why would you ever bother even thinking that you could choose the songs? Pick songs that those guys know intimately that were very old and uh, recorded originally before you were born. That way, you don't have to talk. The chances of them screwing <laughs> up are much lower. Correct. And they already knew the tunes. Uh, and, and so Paul Smith did the arrangements. You know, they were just head charts, really. And uh, he came in, as he does usually, in a Hawaiian shirts and shorts and tennis shoes. And the other guys uh, were great. And, man, it was an unbelievable experience. My kneecaps were shaking uh, violently through the whole thing. I was so nervous. I didn't know what to do. And um, I figured that if I was supposed to talk, at least I could tell them that I liked it because, you know, I liked it. You know. But what if, for example, as a producer, I have to assert my dominance, don't you know? What if I didn't like it? Right. But then I thought to myself, you're an idiot, Jeff, because you don't even know if you wouldn't like it. Just keep How it would yourself. you know? You don't, right? But I figured, yeah, I should have done that. But I didn't. I figured I had to say something. And so that something came out like, well, you know, Paul, you know, that big part, um, which I later found out was called the introduction, uh, that big part has two or three parts after that part. And then there's another medium-sized part. And then there's a small part after that. That's the part that I don't know why that, what part is that part? <laughs> imagine, <laughs> right? Imagine if you're hearing that from a quote producer who does not have a clue and it's just plain as day. And um, they either humored me or ignored me. Either one is satisfactory. I can't remember exactly what happened. We finished the record that day. I flew to New York immediately so that the mat I would put the masters into a plating bath, stop the grooves from straightening themselves out, flew then immediately the next day to Japan where the best records were being made. That's the best pressing plants. And that's how I made my first record. And, um, when I turned it in, the label said, oh, this is good. Maybe we should do two next year. And there and, you were. And there I started. I called my parents. I was still living with them. And I said, I'm not really sure about this. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I think I'm in the record business. I called my mother. <laughs> I think I was in my – and there was a pregnant pause, of course, and she said, you're an idiot and hung up. This cannot be my parents. I thought that surely they would support me. And my dad, who was a prominent attorney at the time, I called back and he answered the phone the next time. And he said, hold on. And there was another pregnant pause. And he came back and he said, your mother thinks you're an idiot. And the post office is hiring. And he hung up. Wow. <laughs> Parental support. So uh, were, were either of them music fans? Did you grow up in a musical family at all? 
I, I, I knew that my, that my parents enjoyed music, but it wasn't something that they lavished upon themselves. Uh, they had lots of friends. My dad, being a very prominent attorney, had friends in that business, um, music people and film people. Uh, but it wasn't something that they uh, came home, opened a, a bottle of wine, and uh, you know, put on some music. It was not like that. So uh, I, I can't say I was raised in a musical home. Uh, my brother, my younger brother, uh, went to Berkeley School of Music and was a piano player and for a long time was a piano player in numerous bands that people know of today. Uh, but, you know, was disillusioned by the fact that you make very little money. And so he got out of it and is doing something far more lucrative for him. But uh, uh, so, yeah. And so I just decided uh, that I was Jeff Weber, the record producer. And, uh, you know, I've been saying that to unsuspecting people ever since. Did you ever go back and get the uh, the law degree? Did you ever take the bar exam? Uh, well, I did take the bar exam, uh, but I had some tragedy. Some I had a brother and a sister that died before each bar exam, and uh, you know I don't know if there's such a thing as a sign, but um, I only had one brother left, so uh, yeah, no, it was some tragic moments, and I didn't oh, really have the 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 bandwidth brain wise to concentrate and. Uh, you know, I took it a few times and was unsuccessful, um, but I use it now more in my capacity as a record producer than I probably would have used it in practice. Jeff Weber, our guest in the Big Time Talker podcast, and uh, we're talking about his long and varied career in the music business. He's also written a couple of interesting books about uh, the music business that uh, are really funny that we want to get into. Um, you know, in, as we are having this conversation, Jeff, this has been a rough year for pretty much everybody. Um, but the music industry has really taken it in the short hairs. It's a, uh, in the crosshairs, it's been one of those things where live music is at essentially a full stop and there's no way to know when it's going to come back. Um, and if you're a, a multimillionaire artist, you're a Taylor Swift, you can afford to take uh, the year off until 2021, but there are, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people behind the scenes in the music industry who are, are not quite so fortunate. So for people who just listen to the music and they appreciate the music, um, talk to me a little bit about all of those behind the scenes people and, and how they're getting through this time of, of not being able to work. I guess, you know, the, the term gig worker, which now you think of as an Uber driver or Lyft driver, uh, that really comes from musicians and, and behind-the-scenes people. Those are the original gig workers, and, and there's no work for them. It's true. It's it's extraordinarily heartbreaking to to see things like that. I, I, I You may know this and you may not, but I do produce large multi-day music festival and concerts, and those things have just literally sunk into the ground uh, when there aren't people that are, well, we have two problems, really. The virus um, forces people not to be able to get together, and because of the virus, people have essentially lost their jobs. So even when it is okay to return to a fairground or a club, people don't have the expendable income yet 
to be able to enjoy that. So uh, people like myself, recording engineers, uh, you know, instrument technicians, lighting designers, front of house engineers, monitor mixers, things like that, people like that have absolutely no way of earning a living. Of course, there's a plethora of, of people making music on the internet from their homes, which have varying degrees of, you know, at least passion because they certainly don't sound great. And for the most part, they don't even look great, but there is a collaborative field, which I find really a collaborative field to the whole thing, which I find really fascinating because more and more the music industry was turning to musicians who would basically do parts in their home and basically phone it in. And, uh, and now there is this yearning there's for a collective. So what I'm really hoping is that when it is safe to, to venture out, that there will be groups of people who want to play together and uh, shows where people want that experience of being with people that love the same type of music and join the, these uh, ensembles in a live environment where they can have a great experience. But right now, we are languishing and uh, it is, uh, you know, I lost all, <clears throat> I've lost uh, all my projects just kind of vaporized. And, and when, you know, I have clients from all over the world and <clears throat> I've lost all of those things. I had one great record where we were doing half the record here and half the record in Taiwan and was three days away from going to Taiwan to do the Chinese, uh, instrumentalists and that went by the wayside um had another client from australia who just could not get to the united states so that project was put back a year uh you know all of those type of things and it's it's been uh, devastating and you know what what do you do you know it's 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 crazy now i know you also have done some work as a music supervisor for movies and television shows and all of those also are, are on ice right now. So is, is that piece of what you do also on hold? Well, it's, I don't do too much of that. Uh, right now I'm involved in a, an amazing documentary or a music supervisor for, it's called the Port Chicago incident. It's about a terrible time during World War II where uh, in, the, in the San Francisco Bay area where uh, battleships docked and Ammunition and bombs were loaded on those ships. Uh, the Navy decided that only black sailors were allowed to load those bombs. And you, as you would expect, there was an explosion. And uh, it, it sunk immediately, sunk those two big ships, killed 350 people, injured 400 people, damaged property up to 20 miles away. And for the most part, nobody even knows about it. Right. So there's a documentary. And of course, timing being everything, uh, it's it's really crazy. After the explosion and everything got back to, quote, normal, the Navy said, OK, guys, let's go back and we want to uh, put more bombs and munitions on these ships. Fifty black sailors said, look, we don't really think this is a great career move for us. <laughs> Would you mind just assigning us somewhere else in the Navy? We'll fight on the front lines if you want. We'll do cleaning. We'll do cooking will do anything. This just doesn't seem like a good idea. The Navy and their infinite wisdom thought that they were in the midst of a mutiny. So they had them all arrested and charged with mutiny. The Navy's own 
definition of mutiny proved conclusively that it wasn't a mutiny. There was no threats. There was no actions. There was no nothing. But the fix was in, and all 50 were convicted. And in the audience was a guy named Thurgood Marshall. And he was outraged. So he decided to take up the case after the Navy trial and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was no mutiny. When the, the jury came back, all of the convictions were upheld. So it, it, it remains kind of a, a dark spot. The good news, if there is such a thing, is that case, that incident, forced the desegregation uh, segregation of the Navy and ultimately the entire armed forces. But then again, pretty much no one ever heard of that. So that's what this doc is, and I'm doing music supervision. Uh, and a lot of things are being done at home uh, by musicians and, and people, but, you know, it's, it's all difficult because there's no money to do anything. Right, right. You know, it's, it's interesting that you talk about the documentary that you're working on now, and I know from looking at your producer credits and even on some of the artists that we worked with together – that you've got a, a long career in, in doing uh, lots of rhythm and blues music, lots of jazz music, and working with lots of people of color. And I wonder, as we have this conversation, and you live in Southern California and Los Angeles, where there have been protests that have turned into violent uh, riots afterwards, and, and you see what's happened with George Floyd, if, if the experience of working with all those African-American artists for the last 30-plus years has influenced the way you look at what's happening in the world today? Well, (laughs) for me, for the past 40 years, I look at music in the same, uh, uh, all the same. I I haven't changed my position or anything. I I want the best for my clients. So it doesn't matter to me whether you're black, green, red, yellow, purple, blue. I only want what's right for the music and what's right for my artists. The president of my company, who's been with me for 35 years, you know him, Michael Clark, is a black man. Been with me, you know, I'm 68, been with me for for more than half my life right right and uh the reason and i and i i use um musicians of color because they're extraordinary and why wouldn't i i use the right people for the job and uh so for me nothing has changed i i've always been the same as a matter of fact though i've actually changed someone so I'll uh, tell you a quick story about this. Because of these uh, these riots and everything, um, uh, one of the people that I asked to do a recent record, uh, you know, an incredibly talented musician and, uh, and a ranger and a songwriter, uh, passed on a record that I was doing with an artist from the San Francisco Bay Area who was a young female singer of color. And he's a man of color. And uh, the budgets were small, and he's used to making a lot of money. And uh, so he passed on the project, and my attitude is, look, you've got to do what's best for you. If the available funds aren't right for you, then don't do the project. I bear you no ill will because not everybody works for a major label. And we're just trying to make music here. Not everybody has the funds. Right. So 
I, you know, I, I said, fine, you know, he's family to me. All my clients are family to me. And, and we stay connected for decades. So these riots happen and everything like that. And I get a phone call from him saying these uh, riots and all the protesting and everything has forced him to reevaluate his priorities. And he said that for the last 20 years, you've had my back speaking to me. You're the one that's hired me. You're the one that's encouraged me. You're the one that's provided opportunity. Why would I say no? And uh, I said, it's, it's, never, it's not about the money. Uh, and I said, look, the artist would be thrilled to have you back. And it was because of these, these riots and protesting and all that stuff that it changed his mind. I was humbled by his call and uh, grateful for it. You know, I've been using him since he came over from Africa, you know, because he's amazing. And one of my secret weapons, one of the bullets in my gun, why wouldn't I if it would help the project? Why wouldn't I if it adds meaning and comfort and uh, passion and commitment to what I do? It just makes perfect sense to me, which means that whatever is happening now doesn't make sense to me at all. Jeff Weber, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. He's a music industry pro, a Grammy award-winning producer, uh, has done all sorts of stuff, music supervision for movies and TV, and uh, he's taught music business affairs, and uh, the list just goes on and on. Also an award-winning author. Hey, Jeff, I want to ask you about some of these these artists that you've worked with, and, um, and and we'll play a little game, and you can throw out the first word or phrase whenever I mention some of these folks that you have produced, you've actually produced. Are you ready? I'll give it a shot. You know, I suffer from CRS, you know. CRS? What is that? Can't remember shit. Uh, yeah, well, that that could be a problem here. All right, here we go. You worked with the incredible Jackson Brown. That's right. So you want to know the artist that it was for? Tell me. <laughs> I think I'm the only guy. This is interesting. That recorded Jackson Brown in Spanish. Really? I never recorded him in English. Only in Spanish. Interesting. <laughs> because he 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 did a record. He he appeared on a record I was producing for Luis Conte, the fabulous percussionist. I'm probably the only guy that recorded Jackson Brown not in English. Wow. All right. <laughs> the guy who had a big uh, comeback tour reuniting with the Doobie Brothers this year, that got put on ice because of COVID-19. You worked with Michael McDonald. A word or phrase about Michael McDonald. Uh, Michael McDonald was interesting, and it should have never happened. How's I should that? have never worked with Michael McDonald because I was working with Amy Holland, Amy Holland is an amazing singer and just happens to be Michael McDonald's wife. The record label decided that since I was working with Amy Holland, that I should have Michael McDonald on the record. One of the premises in order to get Amy Holland on the record in the first place was that I not ask Michael McDonald to appear on this record. I totally get it. 
you know, didn't want to seem weird or funky. You know what I mean? It would seem like, oh, you know, Michael McDonald was asking his wife to sing on a record. But it wasn't that way at all. It was the fact that I wanted Amy because she would add so much amazing texture and color to the project. But the record label said, oh, no, you have to get Michael McDonald. And, you know, we ended up getting Michael McDonald and David Pack from Ambrosia for that. And um, I don't think Amy ever spoke to me again. That was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What She's about, amazing. What about the legendary Etta James? Huh. Etta James. Um, well, she is one sassy, amazing woman. I recorded her live. And uh, she was large and in charge. And I'm not kidding. You did it her way or she told you where you could go. But I was happy to do it her way. You know, uh, so actually, uh, what's her most favorite, her most famous song to you, Burke? At Last. Which is My Wife and I's song, you know. And uh, so it was amazing. It was an amazing concert. And she is as naturally funky as any person I've ever worked with and has that soulful voice that you'll know, you know, in the midst of soulful voices, you'll know Etta James. What a woman. The legendary David Crosby. <laughs> David Crosby. Uh, we did a project with Kenny Rankin, probably one of the finest male vocal sounds ever. And, um, you know, he was at Woodstock. Kenny was at Woodstock and became friends with, with David then. And it took me a long time to get David on the record, you know, uh, he, but it, when I finally did, he's what a great guy, you know, just really humble and, you know, obviously a fantastic singer. And it was just a, it was just terrific. This is interesting. The Utah symphony. Oh my goodness. Well, there was a, there was a special microphone uh, called the Calrec Soundfield microphone, which is basically a microphone with one big diaphragm. So the challenge was to see if uh, um, one microphone could handle an entire orchestra. Now the Utah Symphony. Uh, also, we also had uh, kind of ex-members of the this big uh, this big corral. I forget what the name of it was by now, but so we had <clears throat> a 350-piece corral vocally plus the Utah symphony all on this one mic. And we use certain spot mics to kind of get percussion and things like that. But by and large, the whole thing was done live with one microphone. And that's why the Utah symphony, uh, was, was selected. So what do you do in a case like that, where you've got one microphone and a gazillion musicians and singers uh, and, and if somebody throws up a clam, if they throw up a bad note, you have to do the whole thing all over again? Well, it depends. That particular version, yeah, because we recorded it live to two tracks. Uh, and so we would do it over again. But <laughs> when you have that many people, uh, two things. Number one, yes, there will be clam, clams. And number two, it's going to be really hard to hear them, you know, unless they're really outrageous, uh, at which point we would do the song again. Jazz great Stanley Clark. Oh, my gosh. 
I recorded him a few times, most notably with Patrice Russian um, and, and Dugu Chancellor. Uh, great trio. And, you know, Stanley, what I love about the trio and Patrice and, and Dugu is it's effortless. Their creativity, their expression, their improvisation is effortless. As a matter of fact, in order to be a great producer, you just don't talk. Get out of the way. Let those guys play with each other, play off each other. And, you know, you're smiling all the way. I mean, the one thing that Stanley and I had at the time is we were both going through divorces and we were comparing uh, divorces financially. He won. It cost him. <laughs> Does anyone win? I don't know. Oh, well, when I say he won, he lost because, you know, his cost a fortune and was ongoing. Mine was, you know, it was a different story. But, um, but. When personal freedom is at stake, I guess if you can, you will, you know. Uh, but what a, uh, uh, you know, a gentleman and an extravagantly gifted player. One of my favorite singers of all time, you produced Nancy Wilson. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of effortless, <clears throat> um, that was for Bruce Lundvall. And it was a combination, an all-star combination with Joe Henderson and Chick Corea. I mean, you know, my cup runneth over, wouldn't you say? Okay. Uh, and another another live recording that uh, was in a smaller venue. And it was just amazing. I mean, you didn't have to talk about anything. I mean, what is there to say? I mean, she she does what she does, and again, an unmistakable sound. And she just—I mean, there's there's other famous stories. You know, Joe Henderson uh, gets out of his car, and the first thing he says to me instead of "Hello" is "Where's my check?" You know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> but you know, when you have a history of not being paid, you can certainly understand that. And uh, you know, at that time, uh, Chick was experimenting with uh, piano mics that would adhere to the soundboard i wasn't really comfortable with that my engineer wasn't really comfortable for that because we told him that during the show the microphones would come off and start bouncing on on the strings. that's a problem he, he insisted that that would not happen so um of course it happened and uh, so we actually we had mic'd the piano so that in the, the eventuality that didn't happen we could at least recover quickly although we lost the recording of that song because of that you know you can't have ping-ponging microphones on piano strings during a tune you know but uh it all worked out in, in, the, in the end wow we're talking with jeff weber about some of the uh, the legendary artists he's produced what about john sebastian from the love and spoonful oh man that one i'm gonna have to pass on only because i just can't remember what? No, I can't remember it. I can't remember it. I don't, and, and all I remember is, boy, he was a nice guy. But that's it, man. I just can't remember that one. All right, fair enough. We'll let you off the hook. One of the things that's interesting about this resume of yours is the variety of artists. You know, there are uh, R&B artists. There are these legendary jazz artists. Um, but there's a whole group of, of all things heavy metal guys. Ronnie James Dio, Richie Blackmore, Billy Sheehan, Cozy Powell. What is that all about? 
Tell me about that experience. <laughs> well, those those guys happened to be. Uh, some of them are on the, on their own, but some of them ha- were involved in a record I did with Pat Boone. With Pat Boone. The record was called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And it was what what was termed at the time heavy metal versions, uh, you know, his version of the heavy metal songs, which, to be truthful, nothing but a big band jazz record. We took the songs and uh, we, um, we had great arrangers and we made them big band jazz charts and we invited the, the, uh, the people that were either in the band or composed to be a part of the song. And so that's where you get Dio and some of these other guys, Dweezil Zappa, you know, they, they participated in the record. <laughs> it was great. And what's it like when the heavy metal guys get together with Pat Boone in the recording studio? Fantastic, because Pat has nothing but respect for them. And they, of course, think this is the weirdest piece of shit record that they could possibly be on. But at the end of the day, when all was said and done, it turned out to be amazing. And they were happy to be involved. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the songs, uh, let's see, Ozzy. Ozzy. One of the songs was used as the theme song for Ozzy's uh, MTV series. You know, so it, you, you, it was it was crazy. So, you know, Pat Boone was so gracious and so gentle. And I produced that record with, um, oh, crap, uh, another wonderful, I can't remember. But anyway, <clears throat> it, it was a co-production. And uh, uh uh, it was just fantastic. Jeff Weber's our guest today. And, and Jeff, I want you to think about something for just a second that, that maybe escapes you sometimes. We're talking about all these artists that you've worked with down through the years. And for most people listening to have the opportunity to, to be in the same room with any one of those people would be a lifetime memory. And yet you've got almost 40 years of working with so many of these bold-faced names and being in, in such amazing rooms and having these amazing opportunities that there are things that you can't remember about them. And so I guess the question would be, you know, do, do you ever sit back and go, what an incredible blessed life I've had to be, you know, jam-packed with all these unbelievable experiences? You're like the Forrest Gump of the music business. You just wind up everywhere with everybody. I have been incredibly blessed. I mean, the, I mean, I remember sitting with Lalo Schifrin, uh, you, you know, who wrote the Mission Impossible theme. And, you know, interestingly enough, he talks like Count Dracula. And uh, it, it's just, <laughs> I, I mean, and, and what, what's interesting about it here is a monumental figure in composition and everything, but he doesn't necessarily, uh, have he doesn't necessarily believe that he's as amazing a pianist as he is and uh so he takes absolute precautions and you know he'll wear gloves over his hands between each take so that he can keep his hands warm as he listens and you know obviously such such an amazing mind but you know just little nuance things like that i remember and uh it's amazing 
because I'm no longer a producer whenever I walk into the recording studio. I am a fan. I am just sit there and I got this huge smile on my face. And, uh, you know, I try to put people together that I know will work. Kenny Burrell, come on, you know. Uh, live to two-track, Kenny Burrell, oh, my God. You know, one of just music that envelops you and caresses you and stuff. And it, you, you know that if you, if you started 150 years ago to study the guitar, you would never be as good as somebody like him, you know, because there's so much more nuance and feeling and just, man, sabotages your dreams to be in the room with people like that. Sure. Uh, Luther Vandross, the guys from Toto. I mean, the list just goes out. We could do that all all year, but I, I, I do want to ask you about the books. Uh, you you decided to write a couple of books that that poke fun at your own industry. So tell me about the the origin of where you decided to to you know put a, a needle in the helium balloon. There, musicians are loving but cruel, and they are loving but cruel to each other. And many, many, like 35 years ago, 40 years ago, I started just listening to the jokes and the nonsense that musicians would tell each other, uh, just, just the cruelest stuff. And I, and I just started collecting it, actually. And uh, <clears throat> I thought, oh, my God. This is hilarious. Anybody who uh, would be interested in music would, you know, want to read some of these things. And I've collected quotations. And, you know, I'm fixating right now on, on a quotation by Tom Waits, you know, who is an unbelievable songwriter and amazing, amazing vocalist. I mean, he's got such a unique sound. But the quote that's in my, my new book is, uh, it says, from him he says the world the world is a terrible place and bad writing is ruining the quality of our suffering <laughs> <laughs> and i thought that was incredibly astute and uh and so i've collected these these quotations i've collected these lists i mean you you've no doubt experienced the biggest lies of um you know live touring oh we have tickets for you at will call yes oh come on come on and i have stupid things like what is something that you would never hear on a tour bus are you ready tell me checkmate <laughs> <laughs> or don't worry i'll clean it up you'll never hear that on a tour bus True. right that's right so, I mean, I have lists of, of, of nonsense and lists of things, but in the midst of all of that, there's truth, truth in the tragedy of our stories. For example, um, you know, Burke is the brand new major label artist, and he's decided to call his A&R guy, Tom, to find out what he thought of his new record. So Burke calls Tom and says, hey, Tom, what'd you think of my new record? Tom says, I don't know, Burke. I'm the only one that's heard it. <laughs> that is the tragedy of our business. Because obviously, if Tom's boss likes it, then Tom likes it. So, uh, and that happens all the time, you know. So there's, 
there's tragedy in humor. Uh, there's truth in humor. And my new book is called You Sound Amazing, Every Single Lie of the Music Business. <laughs> <laughs> and the cover is, a, is an animated picture of what probably was me uh, just grimacing with my fingers in my ears. <laughs> you know, you sound amazing. So, and, uh, you know, I, I, I collect this stuff, uh, and from the stupidest stuff to, um, you know, really, really great quotations. I have a definition of terms, you know, so if you really want to know what these musical terms are, then you would go to the end of the book right. and, you know, you would, you would look up, let's say perfect pitch. Okay, for people in music, they know what perfect pitch is, but they don't really know what the true scientific definition of perfect pitch is. Well, let me tell you. Yeah. It's the ability to throw a clarinet into the toilet without hitting the rim. That is a perfect pitch right there. Perfect pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I have every light bulb joke there is regarding musicians. It's, it's the ridiculous. So I tell everybody, look, to get the full benefit of the book, keep it near the bathroom. Perfect. <laughs> so, and and I have blurbs on the back. I mean, blurbs from amazing people. Um, there's a fellow named Steve Hunter who has won the Pulitzer Prize, a New York Times best-selling author and film critic for the Washington Post. His blurb for me was, "Jeff Weber's been lying to me for years, so he knows what he's talking about." Perfect. That's perfect. Perfect. It's a perfect blurb. Uh, Dan Morgenstern of Rutgers University Jazz Department. His blurb was a tour de farce. I like it. Perfect. I like it. Perfect. Just just silliness. But that's what we need. You know? Got to keep smiling. So, and, and both of those books are uh, available now at Amazon.com and uh, from the publisher. Well, the, the first two is, this, the, the first one is, is available in, uh, in paperback. Okay. And uh, the second book is called We'll Get Back to You, Even Bigger Lies in the Music Business. Yes. <laughs> and that's available electronically through Amazon. And my publisher is Headline Books in West Virginia, and you know it well. I do. And, uh, and the third one is coming out. Uh, rather shortly, and I, 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 I expect in the fall. Uh, we've already done all our edits, and this one has a lot more cartoon illustrations, more nonsense, more truth, and more fun. Well, there's a quote that, that's often been attributed to Hunter S. Thompson. I'm not sure if he actually ever said it, but you know, it was the music business yeah. is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. and I think That's right. <laughs> uh, I, that is also in my book. And uh, just so you know, I am writing a crime novel. Oh, yeah? As my fourth book, based on, uh, loosely based on a recording session that I did with this female guitarist named Emily Rembler. Uh, very, really amazing, kind of known as the female Joe Pass. And, uh, you know, so that that is in the, in the wings, as it were. I've done enough humor. Now I'm going to try my hand at something else. Another creative outlet for Jeff Weber, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. And before we wrap up, I should mention that uh, your books are actually what brought us together, but we had the opportunity to work together as well on, uh, on our mutual friend Landau Eugene Murphy Jr.'s third album. And uh, uh, I'm very proud of that, that album and uh, proud of our participation with you on it. Landau was a joy to work with. 
we assembled an all-star band. Uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, we have behind-the-scenes footage, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, just gives you some idea of how great it was. I'm very proud of that record. Good stuff. Jeff Weber, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. When things calm down out there, I hope to see you again soon, my friend. I, I'm, I'm counting on that. Very good. The show will service of speakermatch.com. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for listening. Now go out and make it a great day.